Good morning. Please stand for our call to worship this morning. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. For it is grace, for it is by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not from ourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Father God, we pray that you would give us hearts to receive the message this morning. Pray that you would give us minds to understand, and you would give us the ability to do. We pray, Lord, for your name to be glorified. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please remain standing for our hymn. Amen. It is great to see you as we gather for worship today, those of you who are here at the church, those uh, who are with us on streaming, and we are glad that you're a part of this time together. If you're here, let me invite you to share a word of greeting, a word of peace with others here in worship this morning.
good to see each of you. And uh, if you want to open in your bulletin to the insert, I'm going to talk just a little bit about that, talk about the good news and the opportunity that's ahead of us in what we call faith promise. Our God is great, and he is faithful. And of course, as I mentioned maybe a few weeks ago, the good news, the big news, is that the goal for our current faith promise year has been surpassed. It always is met, but it just kind of snuck up on me. It looked like we were behind, and and now we're over the top. In the last half dozen years, our church giving for ministry outside of our four walls has increased, and faith promise giving has contributed to that significantly. Faith promise is really not about us. It's about God's faithfulness. That's what faith promise giving is. It is trusting God to supply above and beyond our regular church stewardship. Any good work in the church is done by God himself the whole, through the Holy Spirit, and that's what this is. Our regular church tithes and offerings goes to missions at home and abroad to the tune of about $110,000 next year. That's our regular offerings. But some time ago, we knew God could do more through us, and needed, we needed to allow him to do that. And faith promise giving unleashed that. So we want to explain that just a little bit. Now, we don't have a matching gift donor. <laughs> we actually have God himself who provides the funds through us. And very generously, if we meet our goal for next year, we'll be giving $140,000 for missions. And God gets all the glory. You'll notice on the insert that we have pictures of six missionary families. Faith promise is about people on the front line serving as the hands and feet of Jesus. Houghton Wesleyan Church supports dozens of missionaries uh, through our regular budget and so on, but our faith promise, we call them dream teamers, are those serving particularly our Wesleyan Church family near and far with a full spectrum of holistic and evangelistic means. So you can see that it's in Buffalo, in the Czech Republic, Haiti, Sri Lanka, Australia, and Asia. It's an amazing team. I wish you could hear the stories, and you can if you get the missionary mailbag each month or check the bulletin board out here. We can't put all the stories on, online. That's why we don't have them there because of uh, security reasons, but uh, God is doing great things through this group of people. And you'll notice that two of them, the Strands and the Austins, have been an intimate part of our church over the years. So we will receive the faith promise, we sometimes call them pledges, but they're really not that, on May 21st, in two weeks. So by faith, we trust what God would do through us in addition to our regular giving. The goal is $33,334 to be received one year from now as God provides the funds. Be in prayer. And that's why you could even use this insert and for the next couple of weeks. In a couple of weeks, we're going to want to tear that out and put it in the offering or uh, drop it in a box and know what you believe God wants to do through you. We also would like to hear from you Many of you have found God providing for you this faith promise above and beyond your normal giving. And if you have a story to tell, send it to me by email or to the church office, and maybe we can share some of those stories, anonymously or otherwise. The great 19th century missionary to India, William Carey, said, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things 
for God. That's a good description of faith promise giving. God bless you as you pray about this in the future. God bless. This morning, the choir will be singing an arrangement of When in Our Music, God is Glorified. And when we come to the final stanza, I will turn and invite you to stand and lift your voices with us in praise of our great God. This morning's Old Testament scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 32, verses 3 through 12. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, 
and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who are with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers of their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted." Please stand for the singing of the Gloria Patri. Father God, we know that all the gifts we have come ultimately from you, and we pray that you would take what we have and multiply it. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated as we receive the offering.
God who calls us to come to him, invites us to be honest with him. So join with me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Eternal God, giver of every good and perfect gift, we bow before you, acknowledging our corporate sin and our need for corporate forgiveness. In this past week, as your people, we have doubted your goodness. We have pursued the idols of wealth and possessions. We have lusted for power. We have spoken harsh words and ignored people who are in need. We have spread gossip and listened eagerly at the misfortune of others. Most grievously, we have been consciously and subconsciously negligent to give thanks for your blessings. As your people, forgive us and lead us in the way to everlasting life through Jesus Christ. Amen. As we pray together, if you would like to come and use the altar rail as the place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, we thank you for your call to us to come. Not to come when we have made ourselves righteous. Not to come when we have our life together. Not to come when we figured out everything. But to come as we are. Poor, needy sinners. We thank you that your invitation is not just to come for the experience of your forgiveness and salvation, but also to come and to pray. And you promise that when we pray, you hear us. And so in this moment, we pray with the confidence that you have promised us. We pray, Father, for the needs and the burdens that we bring with us today. We pray for those who are grieving. and We think particularly of Lori Dashnow and her family at the death of her father this week. We pray for all struggling with health concerns. Chuck Barrett, Brian Maston, Joe Breton, Cheryl O'Brien, Storer Emmett, Ben King, Doris Asepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Laurel Buker, Bill Getty, Warren and Ella Woolsey, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, and others who are on our minds and our hearts today. We pray, Father, for uh, the needs that we have that are financial and ask that you would give us, give us to trust you in the midst of those. Some of us here today are uncertain about the future. We pray that you will give wisdom and confidence that you are leading us and guiding us. Father, we pray for uh, the ministries of this church and we thank you that we are able to minister to one another and to minister to others around us. And we pray that you will continue to help us as we serve and teach and love one another. We also pray for churches around us. 
We pray for the Christ Church in Cuba, Pastor Hamlin. Pour out your blessing upon this gathering of believers that they would be united in you and that they would share your grace with others around them. Father, we, we pray for our nation. We ask for your blessing on our nation and that we would be united in you as well. We think, Father, of the needs of our world. Pray for refugees and help them to have, find a safe place to be and that you would end the turmoil in their homeland, that they might return home in safety. We pray for places of war and violence and disasters and ask that your spirit and your people would be evident and present in each of those situations. And Father, we pray for your church. We pray for, for those who are heading out on summer mission trips. Some are leaving next week. Some are leaving later. Some are in and out of town. We pray that you will anoint each group with your Holy Spirit, each person, that this experience would, would not only stir a new faith in you and their own heart, but also in those to whom they minister. And we pray, Father, for Stephen Ruth Strand and their ministry in Buffalo. Thank you for their commitment to the city, for the needs there. We pray that they will know your strength and your, your grace and power in all that they do. And Father, we cannot come together to worship in freedom without remembering our brothers and sisters who are unable to do this. We pray for Pastor Ko and his family in Malaysia as he is in captivity. We pray that you will protect him, strengthen him, that he will soon be released into freedom. We pray that you will help him to, uh, to so share your love even with those who have captured him, that their hearts would be open to you and turn to you. Comfort his family and his people, his church. We ask, Father, for your grace upon all of your children who face these kinds of circumstances. Lord, we thank you for your blessings in our lives. We ask that you would help us to see you. May we give thanks to you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us in his death and made life a reality through his resurrection, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
Before I read this morning's uh, New Testament scripture, I just wanted to, uh, one more time before my internship here at the church ends, just have the opportunity to really thank each and every one of you. Um, I'll be leaving later this week, and I just wanted to say it's been a real privilege to get to know some of you and and to serve with uh, the team here. So thank you. Please uh, stand for this morning's New Testament scripture reading found in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, uh, children are dismissed to Children's Church.
Please be seated. All of us have fears of one kind or another. Maybe uh, may your fears may be different than mine, mine different than yours, different from each other, but we all have fears. I did a little searching this week about common fears and the things that tend to pop up at the top of the lists are things like flying and heights, falling. There seems to be a connection with those. Uh, the dark, uh, fear of water. I hate to say this, but the only occupation that people are afraid of is the dentist, uh, which you could probably understand why. You hear that drill and it makes fear in your heart. The uh, people are afraid of uh, snakes, spiders, death. It intrigued me that death is actually on most of the list, came out like fifth or sixth. You would think it'd be higher on the list than that. And uh, then I remembered a, a little thing that Jerry Seinfeld used, once said that he said that he heard, saw a survey that said that the number one fear of the average person is public speaking. And number two was death. He said, death is number two. You would think it, wouldn't, it would be number one. But he said, I guess that means that if you have to go to a funeral for the average person, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true, but I don't know. But we, we wrestle with all kinds of fears. The reality is, though, that there are those kinds of fears, and then there are deeper fears. The fear of intimacy. Fear of rejection. Fear of being abandoned. The fear of being alone. Fear of failure. And what I find is that those kinds of fears tend to drive a lot of what we do in our lives. Those kinds of fears tend to have a lot, carry a lot of weight in what we do or don't do. You think for a moment about something that you've said for a long time, I've always wanted to do that. Why haven't you? I suspect some part of the answer to that is fear. We all wrestle with them. You know, it, 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 it has a bearing on our relationships. It has a bearing on our occupations. It has a bearing on life in general. And fears tend to drive us. All you have to do is look at, the, at how the political world operates. It's been going on for a long time, but just take, go back to the last election cycle. And if you watch the ads closely, if you listen to them, if you listen to the speeches you will find that the majority of the time, if not almost all the time, the candidates are talking far less about what they're going to do and far more about what's going to happen if that person is elected. If you vote for them, the world as you know it will no longer exist. If you vote for that person, your life is done. And, and they use fear as a motivation to action. Quite frankly, a lot of Christian organizations use fear. They send out letters. They, they, they make calls saying, if, if, if you don't support us, if you don't help us, all of these terrible things are going to happen. 
And it's creating this atmosphere of fear that drives us. But fear also paralyzes us. There are so many things about life that we do not do because we are afraid. If you were here last Sunday, we'll preach from the parable of the talents. And in that parable, two of the, of the servants are commended by the master because they took risks. And the one servant is condemned by the master because he was afraid. Fear is not of God. Now granted, we talk about fearing God, but that's something different. That's awe and respect and and worship. But the kind of fear that tends to drive us is not that kind of fear. It's, It's the kind of fear that paralyzes us. It's the kind of fear that causes us to do things that don't look anything like Jesus. And leads us down pathways that are not the pathways of Jesus. That kind of fear is not of God. And that's why when so often in the scriptures, when an angel appears to someone, or when God himself appears to someone, almost invariably the very first words out of their mouth is, do not be afraid. John writes and says, perfect love casts out fear. And so when Jesus steps into this room with the disciples, they are overwhelmed with fear. John tells us here that they have locked themselves in this room. It is the night of the resurrection, just three days since Jesus was crucified. They have locked themselves in the room for fear of the Jewish religious leaders. Now that fear is not unsubstantiated. This is a real fear. They just watch Jesus whom they believed was the Messiah, whom they believed was the one they've been waiting for, who had the power of God, maybe even God himself, as they were thinking through this. This is the one they've been waiting for. This is him. And the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans crucified him. I think I would be fearful too. And so here they are huddled in this room. And and what fear does to us, it tends to cause us to to escape and, and to seclude ourselves. We try to build as many walls around us as we can to protect ourselves. It's the most natural thing in the world to do. When we are afraid, we tend, really afraid, we tend to do one of two things, either fight or flight. That instinct kicks in, right? It's just what we do. I've done it. And maybe we're more, we're more inclined to one or the other, but it is the most natural response. It's, it's what the animal kingdom does. Earlier this week, I was out running on the road by our house, a big field, there were five or six deer out there, and they, they saw me coming, and they, they turned, they watched me for a while until I got close enough, and then they all ran. But if I were out there and I encountered a bear... Or a lion. I don't think we probably have lions. Though there have been sightings of bears. I, wouldn't, I don't think they would run. I think they would, they would bare their teeth and get their claws up and be ready to fight. And the church has had a tendency to either fight or flight. 
There have been times in history in the church where we've said, what we need to do in this sinful world is to seclude ourselves from everybody else. We'll, we'll circle the wagons, we'll build the walls, and we'll just become this little holy place waiting for Jesus. Thessalonians tried to do that, and Paul said, that's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this world. But then there's the other extreme, which I think actually we see more we see more prominent today, and that is when we are opposed, we go on the attack. If they're going to treat us like that, we're going to treat them like that. We're going to use all the same strategies that everybody else uses. We are going to fight. And it often turns into, into conversations about rights. And I think there is a time of wisdom when... Getting away from the danger is the right thing to do. And there is a time when we stand up for what is right and true. But not because we're afraid. But because we believe this is the right thing to do. See, the problem with with using fear as a motivator is all it does is make us more afraid. And so Jesus steps into this room and says, peace be unto you. In other words, don't be afraid. Feel my peace. And and John says, when they saw Jesus, they were overjoyed. The presence of Jesus changed the whole dynamic of that room. They were filled with joy. I think because now they understood something, at least, about why the tomb was empty that morning. But there is this reality of seeing Jesus. It changes our perspective, and and it speaks into our fears. And for us, we don't get to see the physical presence of Jesus, but we can see Jesus in many ways, primarily through the spiritual disciplines. That's why reading Scripture on a regular basis is so important, because it keeps Jesus in front of us. It keeps us image of Jesus, a perspective of Jesus. We keep seeing it over and over and over again. We're reminded of who God is and what God has promised and how God has dealt with people through the ages. And we understand that. We see Him. We do the same thing with prayer. We get an image of Jesus as we pray to Him and as we listen to Him speak to us and worship. It's a primary means that we have of seeing Jesus. As we sing the songs in worship, we're reminded of the truths of who God is and of the kingdom. And we read the scriptures and we pray together. And all of these things are ways of reminding us of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has promised. And we see him. It's one of the reasons why I I think following the church calendar is always a good idea. Because over the course of the six seasons of the year... All of them focus on a different part of of Jesus. Every one of them is designed to to focus our attention on Jesus. And we need that because our natural inclination is to focus life and worship on us. And if our focus is on us, that's going to lead to fear. What we need is to focus on Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just appear. That's not enough because they, they could see him, and I imagine them saying, Jesus, sit down, you join us here, and we'll just hang out here forever. But Jesus has a word for them. And he says to them, look, as I have sent you, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You can't just stay here. 
It's important to be here. It's important to see Jesus. It's important to to have those experiences. But the point of the experiences is not just to have an experience. The point of it is to go. I have a feeling they were scratching their heads because uh, maybe someone asked, Jesus, wait, let me get this straight. You want us to go from this place of security and walk right into the teeth of the people who are threatening us? And I can see Jesus saying, yeah, that pretty well sums it up. That's it. The threat was real. When they walked out of that room, Jesus didn't say to them, now, I want you to go because I'm not going to let anything happen to you. You read the book of Acts. You know that's not true. You read church history. You know that's not true. He never promises us freedom from the risk of the threats. He does promise to be with us. And he sends us out. And the answer to our fears is to, in the, in the presence and the power of Jesus, to walk right in, right at our fears. It's what we do. When everything in us wants to run away, the call of the gospel is to run to. It is a, it is a supreme act of trust. It is saying, I believe, Jesus, that you have indeed conquered all of my enemies that you have won, that everything is defeated. And because I know that, because I've experienced that, because I trust that, I can walk in faith, even in fear, even in the threats, even in the danger, even in the most difficult circumstances. Because I believe that what you have said is true. And I believe your your promises are always true. I find it interesting that as he sends us out, as he speaks to the disciples about going, he tells them to do one thing. There are lots of things that Jesus could have told them. And when you read other places of scripture, you find different messages. But here, in this moment, at this time, on the night of the resurrection, Jesus says, I'm going to send you out. And here's what you're going to do. You are going to be agents of my forgiveness. He could have said, I want you to go out and do miracles. I want you to go out and teach. I want you to go out and and do this or do that. But he says, one thing is, I want you to go out and be agents of forgiveness. And I think the reason he says that in this particular instance, when he's dealing with their fear, is because most of our fears are, are, are related to people and relationships. Most of those deepest fears, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, the fear of being abandoned, the fear of pain and hurt that comes to us, most of that is about other people. And what we need in those moments more than anything is a willingness to forgive the hurt that people have caused us. To forgive people for the pain that they have inflicted or are threatening to inflict upon us. I think it's a little bit harder for us to understand this concept than it is for many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Who every day live with the reality of threats. Who every day live with the truth 
that those fears are real. And the response that God calls for them to have and for us to have is forgiveness. I sometimes wonder if the most profound act of love is forgiveness. We tend to offer forgiveness when people ask us for it. We tend to offer forgiveness when people we feel like people have done enough to deserve it. I am awfully glad that God doesn't treat us that way. Because the truth is, none of us deserve it. None of us have got done enough. None of us are ever at, have ever come to the place where the forgiveness of God is something we have earned. Rather, it is God's gift. And Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. The confusing part of this passage is that last sentence where he says, you know, he says, if you forgive people their sins, then they're forgiven. If you do not forgive their sins, they're not forgiven. And that confuses us because it makes it appear as if God is saying to us, look, their forgiveness rests in your hands. And so we stand back and say, mm, yeah, all right, I'll, we'll forgive them. Mm, no, nah, not so much. I'm, they haven't gotten there yet. And we have this power to, to give forgiveness or not to people's sins. I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is saying because none of us can forgive sins. Only Jesus can forgive sins. On the other hand, he does tell us that we are agents of his forgiveness. And I, can't, I don't claim to understand what Jesus exactly is saying here. In fact, scholars have been debating this probably since the night Jesus spoke these words. But there is something about God giving us power, giving us the authority to be agents of forgiveness. And there are sometimes people who do not want forgiveness. And sometimes we have to acknowledge that. But this is not a power trip for us to say we get to choose who gets forgiven and who doesn't. Eugene Peterson says in the message at this last sentence, he says, if you do not forgive them, what are you going to do with those sins? Now, I don't know exactly how he came to that particular translation of it, but there is something about that, that there is something in us that says, I'm not going to forgive them. And Jesus is saying, why not? Why do you want to hold on to that? Why do you want to keep that? You do realize that not forgiving people is enslaving you more than it is them. But I also think that this is not so much a word to us as individuals as it is to the church as a whole. He is saying to the disciples, he's saying to his people, you as my church are agents of forgiveness in this world. And you need the world needs it because who else is going to offer it? Who else is going to be, a, be agents of forgiveness in this world but the, one who, who, the followers of the one who on the cross said, Father, forgive them. This is our calling. It's one of the things that sets us apart from all the other people of the world. That the church is an agent of forgiveness. And that's why we have to be so careful that we are motivated by fear and driven by fear. Because if we are driven by fear, we are not very apt to forgive. We will be more apt to be vindictive. 
and hold grudges and fight with people rather than forgive them. And what people need, just like what we need, is forgiveness. So look at some, look someone in the eye and say to them, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. It's a powerful word. And to have someone say that to us, to look us in the eye and say, you are forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. There is power, spiritual power in that. That can change a life. It is imperative to understand that before Jesus says, I'm sending you to be agents of forgiveness, he's, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And that's what enables Jesus to give us the kind of authority to be agents of forgiveness. Because it's really not us, it's the Holy Spirit in us. It's the Holy Spirit working through us. And the church gets itself in trouble when we ignore the Holy Spirit, when we're close to the Holy Spirit, and all we do is act like every other human being, every other organization. But when the church is, is filled with the Spirit, then we become like Christ. And we respond to people like Christ, and we speak words that look, sound like Christ, and we act like Christ. When, when Jesus breathes on them, as I read that passage, it, it made me go back to Genesis chapter 2. God is creating human beings and, and he shapes them out of the dust and then he breathes into them and they come alive. And Exodus, or, uh, Ezekiel 37 says, what do you see, Ezekiel? He looks at it and says, I see this valley of bones. And God says, prophesy to the bones. And he does. And they start coming together. And they start putting, he starts putting tendons on them. And then flesh surrounds them. But they're still just lying there. Until the spirit breathes into them. And they come alive. And Jesus breathes on them. And says, receive the Holy Spirit. And the disciples come alive. They are different people. There is some uh, speculation about how John describes the, the coming of the Spirit on the disciples and how Luke describes it in Acts chapter 2. John says the Spirit comes on them the night of the resurrection. Luke says it comes on them 50 days later at Pentecost. And neither one acknowledges the other's story. And there are scholars who say, well, that just shows you that the you know, Scriptures, you can't trust the Scriptures. But I think it's, I think the reality is that both things happened. And it tells us that the Holy Spirit is not about one moment in time, one extraordinary moment that we experience and then we don't think about the Spirit at all for the rest of our lives. No, the Spirit comes to us again and again and again and again. The Holy Spirit living in us, whether as a person or as a, as a church... It's about a moment-by-moment moment experience of the Spirit. And sometimes we get these extraordinary moments like Pentecost. But the truth is, we live in the power of the Spirit and in the life of the Spirit because we are open to the Spirit's leading and guiding and work every moment of every day. 
And the Spirit keeps working in us again and again and again and again because the alternative is we're living our lives, we're trying to be agents of forgiveness, we're trying to deal with fear on our own, which is a big part of the problem. It's the Spirit. And Jesus says to the disciples earlier in John, when the Spirit comes one of the things the Spirit is going to do is to remind you of everything I've told you, remind you of everything I've done. And the Holy Spirit in us shows us Jesus. The Holy Spirit reminds us that Jesus has conquered death, that Jesus has won, that Jesus is victorious. And because Jesus is victorious, we can live victorious. And that means our fears don't have to engulf us. We don't, have to be, we don't have to be driven by fear. We can be driven by the joy of Christ, by the abundant life of Christ. Does that mean the fears aren't real? No. It just means, I'm going to go out on a limb, it just means that Jesus is realer. Jesus is more real. The fears are true. The threats are, are true. Read the book of Acts. Look at church history. They're true. They're all too real. But Jesus is more. And Jesus tells the disciples, even if it costs you your life, I am still faithful. I am still in control. I have still conquered and won. Trust me. For the better part of the first half of the 16th century, Martin Luther was on a, a, a crusade, a campaign for the kingdom. He fought many enemies. His goal was to reform the church, and, and that cost him greatly. He lived in constant fear of threats on his life. He lived in constant uh, work, trying to do the work of the kingdom as God revealed it to him. He translated the, the Bible into German so people could read it. He was writing theological treaties all the time. He was teaching pastors. I mean, his life was, was extremely full. And in the midst of all of those threats and all of that stress and pressure, there were many times when he became extremely discouraged. And when I read the stories, it feels to me like he's battling depression. And the threats that are, were so real to him. And he used to say that one of the things that brought him out of that as much as anything else was music. He talked about how music was God's gift. And therefore, one of the greatest potential ways that we could use against the devil. The devil hates it when Christians sing because it always creates a spirit of joy in God's people. And he hates that. And so one of the things Luther did as a part of the Reformation was to write hymns and to bring back congregational singing that had been gone from the church for almost a thousand years. Luther's most famous hymn begins, A mighty fortress is our God. When you come to the third verse, he says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage, 
we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. So let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen.
Amen. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. Amen.